And so the bull spins and turns and runs back to the direction that he came from. And the bull stands on top of that, um, that top of that little ridge that he crossed over into our draw. And I see the arrow sticking out and I see blood pump out and the sun's somewhat going down. It was pretty low in the horizon at this point. And so this bull is standing there silhouetted on this ridge. We're in Alaska. It's the first day. All this just happened so fast and he drops. Welcome to Hunting Stories, brought to you by Late to the Game Outdoors. Everyone loves a good story and hunters have some of the best. Our whole mission is to collect and share great stories from hunters just like you to entertain and keep you motivated all year long. So pull up a seat around the campfire, cause here we go. What's up, everybody? On this episode, I am joined by Mark Hilsing from Exo Mountain Gear. Uh, Mark is a great guy. Uh, he and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few years. But uh, but I asked him, as I was talking about some other stuff, if he'd ever be willing to just hop on the podcast and share a story. Uh, because the guy goes on some adventures, and I know he's got some good stories. So he was kind enough to jump on uh, and tell the story of his first ever Alaskan experience it was, uh, it was a hunt for caribou with a few buddies, uh, just deep in the wilderness, and it's, it's an incredible story. We didn't even have time to get to all the coolness that's in there. Uh, then afterwards, we, we talked some pack stuff, and, and I just think there's some great insights, some things to consider, some, some information there. If any of you are considering uh, getting into backcountry hunting, or you're already there, uh, but you just, you're a gear junkie like most of us, uh, Mark has a lot of helpful insight on that front, and uh, without further ado, let's get to the story. All right. Hey, Mark. How's it going today? Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, dude, thanks for taking the time. I am. Uh, this will sound like I'm pandering. I'm not. Uh, I feel honored because literally you guys are the first hunting podcast I ever discovered. Like five or six yeah. years ago, I was driving up for an elk hunt and it just dawned on me. I was like, I wonder if there are any hunting podcasts, which yeah, in retrospect funny. seems like a stupid question, but uh, a yeah. backcountry popped up and I was like, I like hunting and the backcountry. I'm going to listen to that one. <laughs> and um, well, it wasn't as it, silly of a question back then as it is now because there's a million. But yeah, we were, yes. I don't want to say like the first by any means, that would be ridiculous, but there just wasn't, there wasn't too many hunting shows out there when we started. That's for sure. Yeah, no, you guys are, uh, you're pioneers uh, on the right, Oregon pioneering. Trail or something. Now, yes, I've taken it too far. I appreciate you <laughs> calling me out on that. That's, that's uh, I need you to keep me honest. Um, well, it was, hey, as, I, it was as, uh, uh, like, as intentional as Steve and I going, man, we know some pretty cool people that are fun to talk to. And thankfully, we get to talk to them sometimes. Maybe we should hit record when we do that and just share it. Like, that was pretty much all there was to it. And then I was like, yeah, I don't know how to host a podcast, publish a podcast, how to get it in iTunes, none of that, but Hey, you can Google things and we'll figure this sucker out. So oh, yeah. it wasn't too no. strategic. <laughs> That's, there wasn't some grand marketing scheme. It was just, what if we tried this? Yeah. Um, oh man. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, and just, I, I'm sure people are, uh, I shouldn't be sure. Uh, you're, you're a known name in the hunting world, but I mean, if you wouldn't mind like snapshot quick, bio who who are you uh yeah so i um 
I'm not that known. I don't think, uh, maybe for <laughs> podcast people. Yes, I'm known, but I also try and like fly under the radar in terms of social media and video and anything related to being a quote unquote hunting personality, which I'm just uncomfortable with, but, uh, yeah, work for XO mountain gear. Um, which is, you know, we put out the podcast, the hunt back country podcast, essentially XO foots the bill for like hosting essentially. Um, but yeah, work for XO full-time, which is a pack company based in Idaho. Uh, weird, long story. I actually live in Missouri still. Um, meaning when I started working for XO, I lived in Missouri and still do. And so I'm the one only remote employee of XO mountain gear, but get out there quite a bit and travel and, uh, both for hunting and work and shows and all that fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, just grew up born and raised here in the Midwest and obviously did, uh, whitetail hunting and some small game hunting and things like that growing up. And after college, when I had some free time and a little, little, little bit of money, uh, cause I was just starting <laughs> in a career, I was like, man, I really want to get into the mountains more. Cause I always loved outdoors growing up. And honestly, until that point, I didn't really realize you could take backpacking and hunting and multi-day hiking adventures and all that, like all things I had done separately growing up and put them into one thing and call it backcountry hunting or backpack hunting or whatever you want to call it. But I didn't realize you could take those different pursuits and there's actually a style or a type of hunting that merged them all together. Um, and so I was just like, I got to figure out how to do this. So uh, didn't know anybody who hunted out West, didn't know anything at all. And was like, I'm going to go on an elk hunt in the mountains and live with everything on my back for a week. Um, and again, this was pre podcast, pre, uh, university of elk hunting, pre go hunt, all the resources we have now didn't exist. And so it was just a lot of kind of more traditional research and planning and, uh, long story short, that's how I became a quote unquote Western or backcountry hunter. Uh, did that first trip. It was a raging failure. Uh, and I loved every <laughs> second of it. And I've been doing it every since more and more and more. Man, that is, I, I, it's easy to forget how spoiled we are with all the information out there right now. Oh, uh, dude. And, and just to, to think of guys like, I want to say back in the day, it wasn't that long ago, but it wasn't know, long who, ago. That's the crazy part. <laughs> Yeah, it's just accelerating so fast. But just that like, hey, I'm in Missouri. I want to go chase elk out west. Uh, I'll just throw some gear in a truck and go figure it out. Like that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, uh, I mean, not having Onyx on your phone or Go Hunt to help you figure out where to go in units and even understanding that process or the University of Elk Honey, like all those resources I mentioned. And I only bring those up because they're phenomenal resources that are very helpful. But uh definitely changed the game in the last 10 years, just with those few things, plus others that are out there. Oh man. Yeah. We, we just moved houses and I uh, finally threw away my old GPS. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I held on to it for so long, but I was just, as I found it buried in my closet, I remembered just how, like compared to what we have now, like just kind of having point to point and you just kind of like pivot until it tells you you're going in the right direction and then just start walking. Like, it, I remember feeling, mm -hmm. feeling so, uh, like I was, I didn't get lost in the woods really, but that just the comfort of knowing exactly where I'm going and what's happening. Like it, it wasn't there when you're following this little two inch gray screen from one mm -hmm. dot to the next. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. Oh, 
Dude, well, uh, well, this is hunting stories. So obviously I'm going to ask you to tell me a, a hunting story. And I, I know, I'm sure you have a billion to choose from because, because uh, you get around, but, uh, but what do you want to talk about? I don't We put this podcast together from the last minute and I was deciding, but I think I'm going to go with my first trip to Alaska. Uh, and the reason being isn't just because it was Alaska and it was grand and that's the case, but, uh, I still look back at this trip, which was not too long ago. It was in 2019. And there's so, in so many ways, this trip went nothing like I hoped envisioned, <laughs> planned, wanted it to. Um, and then at the same time, it's also one of my most memorable trips, not only because it's my first experience in Alaska, which is grand, uh, but because I learned so many things on it. Um, and it, it kind of reinforced for me, like the adventure of hunting and the value of as much as we do plan and hope things go a certain way that really at the end of the day, part of what I seek out of hunting trips is the unknown, right? Like I don't, I want to make plans and I want the animals to do what I want them to do and be in the spot. I want them to be on, be in when I'm there and all that stuff. Right. But at the end of the day, we don't actually want that to happen. Meaning we don't want everything to go as planned. We want to experience the unknown and adventure and challenge and all that stuff. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, this trip to Alaska was that for me. So um, yeah, we can chat about that. I could talk for probably three hours about this trip. So I'll try and <laughs> skip some things, but it was a group trip too. So there was actually, uh, what is there six or seven of us that went, um, so Steve, the owner of Exo mountain gear, a uh, couple of guys that I had been friends with mutual friends with Steve for a few years, one of my buddies from back in the Midwest and, uh, it was the first time going to Alaska for probably four of the six guys. Um, Stephen Lenny had gone before on a caribou hunt and a moose hunt. Actually, I take that back. About half the guys had gone to Alaska before and half hadn't. Um, but it was a caribou hunt. And so we were going up to Katsabu, Alaska, flying commercial up there. And Katsabu is a very interesting, small native town. Uh, that if it weren't for hunting, there probably wouldn't be too many people visiting. I'll put it that way. Um, and then from Katsabu, that's when we connected with our transporter, who then flies us 100 plus miles uh, into the Brooks Range. And then that's where our caribou hunt was supposed to take place. So traveling to Katsabu actually went super smooth. Uh, coming from Midwest, I essentially flew overnight. I think our oh, flight geez. maybe left St. Louis at... I don't know, 8 PM or something like that. And then we're in Alaska early in the morning, um, slightly over the final flight to Kotzebue. Then we get to Kotzebue and we're hoping to fly, supposed to fly into the field that day with our transporter, uh, in Alaska travel logistics being exactly what Alaska, Alaska travel logistics are. They're like, Hey, the winds are terrible. We can't fly today. So <laughs> this overnight flight and all the excitement built up to go, I'm finally in Alaska. And now we're going to fly into the Brooks range was delayed by a, a full day spending the day in Kotzebue and that <laughs> just hanging out just, in a nothing town, hanging out in a nothing town. And it's just part of the experience with Alaska is like, whatever you plan, plan on some extra time, because especially those small flights, they just don't go as planned. So 
we spend that day in Kotzebue and the extra nights, and we thankfully do get to fly out the next day. It was somewhat in question, uh, but finally do get to fly out the next day. And honestly, I had nothing but excitement about this trip. I had zero like concerns or nerves until I get in the front seat of this float plane that looks like it's from the fifties or the sixties <laughs> and look at the dashboard and there's literally holes in the dashboard where gauges used to be. And there's gauges <laughs> taped to the dashboard. And then there's other things that are like cracked and broken. And it just had like this, like last minute. Hmm. I'm getting ready to fly in this plane in the middle of nowhere. And this plane like does not plane. look airworthy, you know? Yeah, it's like the a high school beater car, only it's going to fly in the air. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So I found out that that's actually quite normal. They do take care of these planes and service them. But there's a lot of old planes up there with newer engines and uh, well-cared-for engines. But the call it the interior and the finishing touches aren't <laughs> quite what you'd maybe hope for expect. So anyway, I had a bit of nerves, but man, the flight in was unreal. Like at the end of that flight, after months and months of like planning and waiting, I was like, all right, cool. We can go home now. Like I didn't want to go home, but that was <laughs> worth it. Like the whole thing and just being in that country. And then obviously, of course, the moments of they landed us on a lake and there's the Brooks range and you can't see anything but vastness and wilderness. And you're a hundred plus miles away from anything. And then that plane turns around and buzzes off. And so that initial feeling of, all right, here we are like truly, truly remote. Um, you know, and of course it, it was a group of guys. So we all had some experience and there's comfort in that but literally starting to set up camp and this is going to be home for a week with unknown adventure of what's going to happen. Um, and so that was a cool feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> Lenny and Steve weren't able to fly in with us that day. Um, we because were, of we were, space or like. Yeah. So the whole or... time we knew with our group, we were going to need two planes to get guys in. Oh, okay. Um, and that second flight, they, they didn't have two planes available to take us in together. I forget all the exact details. They were planning on um, dropping one group off, coming back, picking up the other guys, but they knew that they were running out of daylight to make that happen. So anyway, long story short, it was most of us, but not all of us. Steve and Lenny had to stay back a second night. So they lost two days up front off their trip. Oh, man. Um, so as we're setting up camp, uh, that first evening that we're there, we're doing some glassing from camp and within 200 yards of camp, some caribou bulls come strutting by. Um, and it wasn't legal to hunt the day that you fly. Oh yeah. Sure. Knew, so we, we watched them walk on by, but it was like, all right, we haven't done anything yet. Haven't left camp and here are some caribou just strolling by. This is going to be great. Um, and that was, uh, about the most activity we had close to camp for the entire week. So. <laughs> <laughs> they came by once and they saw came you guys by once, and just said, a few uh, of yeah, them. let's get out of here. They're like, oh yeah, there's some guys, let's go. <laughs> See, that's one of the things like going into a caribou hunt is, uh, 
you know, you have these envisions of seeing the migration, right? And we had timed this trip based on some of the experiences that other guys had prior in this area um, and specifically chose this place and this time to try and time the migration. uh, And we missed it, man. Like it was a warm year. The caribou were still on the north side of the brooks uh, where they were unreachable. Like our transporter did great. They flew us as far north and got us where they could, but those planes have a limited range. And so we oh, reached yeah. as far as we could reach from Kotzebue basically, um, but just couldn't go further. And they knew that like the transporters up front were like, Hey, we're going to do what we can to get you in a good spot. The caribou movement's been slow. Hundreds of thousands of them are still on the North range, but Hey, there's a cold front coming in this week and it should get a move in. We're going to put you guys in as good a position as we can, blah, 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 blah. So few forecasting ahead now from having hindsight it was it was rough like caribou were not moving not in large numbers not in large groups and uh yeah it just we missed that true migration experience but so you ended up like just kind of hunting more like you would a normal animal like okay let's look for you know pockets of like those few bulls that came through camp like yeah, we were, you're, you're, you're not looking at the, well, here's a train of caribou, pick which one you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were, um, spot and stalk high country mule deer hunting for caribou essentially. Okay. We did all week. Yeah. Which is not <laughs> normal. Like, like, if you know yeah, anything about say, caribou I, hunting. I, I haven't done a ton of research, but I haven't heard that strategy as no. the go-to. Yeah. So yeah, the skipping ahead to the next full day of hunting, uh, again, Stephen Lenny still are hopefully being flown in this day, but the group of us uh, decide to take off um, and hunt together, at least for this first part of the day, start covering country. We got into spotting some caribou within probably a mile and a half from camp. Uh, my buddy Jason um, spotted them and they were, there was this little finger that was coming off the main ridge and he saw a bull that was silhouetted, looked good enough to go chase. So I was like, all right, let's go chase it. And, uh, we go, we cover the distance, we get in position. And there was basically on this day, me, Jason, um, Jared all had rifles. Our buddy Tyler had a bow. And so we told him like, Hey, we will basically give you first opportunity, Tyler, with your bow to try and get in and close the distance and get a shot opportunity. And then we're going to be hanging back with our rifles where if it doesn't work out for you with the stock, then potentially we would then shoot with our rifles. So Tyler yeah. splits off uh, with our buddy, Justin, who's just running a camera and they get around the backside of this Ridge and they're going to pop up and over uh, and try and make a play on these caribou. There's a couple bulls and I can't remember if they got winded, seen, busted, whatever, but the caribou started moving and Jason and I had gotten set up with our rifles to cover these bulls. And, uh, Jason was still trying to get into a good shooting position as these bulls are starting to move out of the area. And he's like, go Mark, like just shoot him, go ahead. And the whole time I'm like, no man, like you spotted them. They're your bulls. These are your bulls. You got time, take your time, wait, you know? And so, uh, it was early on in the trip and I just really felt like Jason, you spotted these bulls, that's your bull. And so, uh, he was finally able to get 
in a good position, gets steady. The bull was still in range, uh, made a shot, connected, and we had a bull down. And this was the first day. Uh, yeah. it was great. It was awesome. And uh, so we get to, for most of us, uh, actually all of us at that point, uh, who were there, it was the first caribou we had approached and put our hands on. And so there's time spent there celebrating and just taking in the wonder of the animal. And we're in Alaska on our first morning of hunting and just killed a bull. And it was awesome, man. It was super. Yeah. Cool. I was, cause, and your whole party isn't even there yet. Right. Yeah. Our whole <laughs> party's not even there. Yeah. But as that <laughs> happened, Stephen Linney had landed a camp and uh, were working their way towards us. And so they wow. basically got there uh, just as we got done taking of the caribou, taking care of the caribou and we're getting ready to pack it out. So now all of us are together. We're all here. There's already a caribou on the ground. This is great. And uh, there's a caribou to be packed out and then there's still daylight left to keep hunting. And so the plan is that me and my buddy Jared, uh, along with Tyler, who was the one with the bow, would keep hunting with Justin, who was running the camera. Steve, Lenny, and Jason were going to pack Jason's bull back to camp. So oh, just nice. as we're talking about that plan and formulating it, getting ready to split up and keep hunting, we actually glassed up some more caribou uh, just across the valley floor on the opposing ridge, which Alaska being Alaska looks nice and easy, but it was about two miles uh, oh, just to look across. And what you don't see in the valley floor is how many changes in terrain there are, how much brush there is, how many times you have to cross a creek and a river and a tributary of that river. And uh, so we see these bulls and we're all a bunch of hikers and used to covering ground in the mountains. So like, oh yeah, we'll just take off over there and we'll go get them, you know, no problem. Yeah, it'll, it'll be 20 minutes. We'll be we'll 20 be minutes. Right no problem. So that's the plan. So me, Jared, um, and the camera guy, Justin and, um, Tyler, I'll take off. And we quickly realize how difficult it is to cross the valley floor there between tundra and mussocks and water and creek crossings and brush. And we're putting waders on because it's hip high water. And then we're taking them off because it's brushy and we're putting them back on because there's another creek crossing that we didn't see. And it takes some effort and some time to cross <laughs> this floor. All the while, Steve, Lenny, and Jason were sitting back where the caribou originally was and they're glassing these elk, uh, these elk, these caribou. And they're just thinking, what is taking those guys like, so long? They have no sense of urgency. They're taking way too much time. They need to get moving. These caribou are going to be gone. And so only later <laughs> did we get to tell the stories of like how terrible it was crossing that. And then them saying, we couldn't see any of that stuff. So we just thought you guys were lazy and slow and terrible, <laughs> just, you know, skipping through the forest, just skipping through the forest. They kept saying like, they were back their glass and they kept saying, they have no sense of urgency. And meanwhile, <laughs> we're like crossing rivers that they don't even see. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. going as fast that you're, you're panicking yourselves. I'm sure. Oh, like, dude. These, yeah. We're like, these bulls are going to disappear. These bulls are totally going to disappear. So we get through most of that and um, we were closing the distance 
we decided well, these bulls are essentially moving from left to right. We're going to come over kind of one little drainage off to the right and hope they keep crossing and they're going to cross over into this little drainage that we're going to work up. And once again, it was uh, Tyler with his bow. And then at this point, me and my buddy Jared both had rifles. And so we said the whole time, like, hey, this is Tyler and the backup boys. Like, Tyler, you're up to bat. <laughs> we're here as backup with a rifle. We'll see what happens, right? Yeah. And so we're working up this little draw and, uh, Tyler's kind of leading the way with the bow. Um, we're letting him try and get in position. He wants to get in. We're thinking these caribou, uh, are just going to be over this little ridge. We're going to peek at, and as we're moving, the caribou actually come over and they're cresting and they're coming into the draw that we are working up. And at this point there's a bowl. And it's a good bull, like really, <laughs> really good bull. And it's essentially working like diagonal towards Tyler, but coming from my elevation. And so it's like on the same elevation as me, Tyler's up the draw in elevation. And this caribou is at my elevation to my left, but working into the draw and gaining elevation and going towards Tyler. And soon as this bull fully crests this finger, I have a shot that's sub 200 yards, like oh. done deal. And this is a gorgeous bull, gorgeous bull. But I told Tyler, Hey, I'm back up, man. Like, we'll see what happens. If it looks like there's some sort of opportunity where you can get this done with your bow, we'll let that play out. Right. Yeah. And the way it's playing out, this bull is literally going to Tyler, like just going to him. And so I keep thinking, well, maybe the wind's not right. Cause this bull's going to cross like between me and Tyler. So whether the thermals are going up or down, it doesn't matter. We got a guy up top. We got a guy at the bottom. Like this is not going to work, but it kept looking like this might work. You know, the, the <laughs> bull just keeps going. And, uh, a few minutes later, this bull is between me and Tyler, I'm in this draw. I'm looking up at Tyler. I'm looking over the bowl and seeing Tyler. So it's like, we're in a perfect line and I see Tyler come to full draw and he's aiming at the bowl and I'm behind the bowl and he's full draw with his bow. And I've never been like downrange of someone drawing their bow at me type thing. Um, and I'm like, if he misses or even if he passes through, like I want to look, but I want to turn my head because in my head, turning my head, if I get it shot, will you. Me. yeah, it'll yeah, protect you know, me somehow. At least you don't get shot in the eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's go for the temple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it literally gets to that point and there was a, it was probably a hundred plus yards. So I wasn't like truly afraid for my life, but was truly like in line pretty much. And uh, dude, it works. Tyler releases the bull spins. Uh, thankfully it was somewhat quartering and Tyler buried the air and it didn't exit towards me, which is great. Wow. I'm sure he did um, it on purpose. Just he to did it on purpose. It was a great, yeah. great shot. Thank you, Tyler. And so the bull spins and turns and runs back to the direction that he came from. And the bull stands on top of that, um, that top of that little ridge that he crossed over into our draw. And I see the arrow sticking out and I see blood pump out and the sun's somewhat going down. It was pretty low in the horizon at this point. And so this bull is standing there silhouetted on this ridge. We're in Alaska. It's the first day. 
all this just happens so fast and he drops. Are you a new hunter or even a guy with some miles under his boots who's still just trying to figure it out? I get it. I've absolutely been there. I'm an adult onset hunter who spent the last 15 years learning how to hunt. And so I wrote the book, How to Hunt, A Total Beginner's Guide to Hunting Big Game, as the resource I wish existed all those years ago when I first started. Whether you're planning to chase elk with your bow in the west, or you're hunting for whitetails back east, this book will take you from knowing absolutely nothing to your first harvest. It's packed with hunting stories and, and plenty of those times where I royally screwed up. You'll leave with a sound strategy for hunting big game and have plenty of laughs along the way. Grab a copy today at latetothegameoutdoors.com slash howtohuntbook. It was so cool, silhouetted man. on the ridge. You watch him go down, dude. It was amazing. So we're all like high fives and getting together, and yes. And uh, so we get together, and you know, he's like, "Oh man, like I can't believe you didn't shoot that bull." Like I don't know if I would have had the patience to not pull the trigger. And I told him, "Like, hey man, it's cool. We're back up." So it was the second time that day or I was like bull in my scope, could have had a chip shot, passed it up. But I'm like, hey, it's the first day. We're seeing elk. This, you know, it's, you know we're seeing caribou. It's fine, <laughs> you know. And uh, so we get this bull taken care of. It's the four of us. We're packing them out. It soon becomes dark as soon as we start uh, hiking off the mountain towards camp. Of course. Of course. And it was our first pack out at this point in uh, what we like to call the hairy balls um like a tundra so there's these <laughs> this swampy lowland with these giant tusks of grass that are tall and high and sometimes when you step on one it's like really solid and sometimes when you step on one it's really unstable or you step on the edge of it and then you roll your ankle off and so you're constantly juggling do i like stay low and walk in the water or do I try and like stay up on these tufts of grass, but then roll off of one and then end up stepping in the water and breaking my ankle. And of course we're doing this with heavy packs in the dark. Yeah. And so it was, oh. it was, it was relatively flat, but it was terrible oh. uh, pack out. <laughs> and, uh, but long story short, we pack this bull out, we get back to camp. The other guys had packed out the bull from that morning prior and they're already back at camp. And so here we are the, the end of our first day in the field to elk in camp. Like this is amazing. Such a cool first day. And then uh, at that point, um, one of the guys goes, Holy crap, but not quite in those friendly terms. <laughs> and I turn around to look at him like, cause he like ex exclamation. And I like, what is he doing? You know, I turn around to look at him and he's staring at the sky and I look up and it went from like seven dudes in the backcountry of Alaska celebrating an amazing day, killing two caribou, telling stories, blah, 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 to like dead silent as we're now all standing under the Northern lights. Oh, wow. And it was like life-changing. Cool. Um, and I had seen photos of the Northern Lights before, but what you don't sure. realize in photos is how much they move. Like 
they float through the sky like smoke and change shapes and dude just like we all stood there completely awestruck and at a loss for words for minutes and minutes and minutes and i bet that you know we eventually started talking but the we had we were standing under the northern lights for i think like 40 minutes um oh wow and watching them move and change shapes and sizes and colors and at that point you know after a while we started trying to get photos and videos and dude like it was an unbelievable moment at the end of a phenomenal phenomenal day and i was like i'm finally in alaska new (laughs) caribou and camp northern lights with good people like it does not get any better than this no you are you are in the middle of most hunters dreams right there it was unbelievable unbelievable um and it was day one yeah, but it, but it, it was also <laughs> the peaked. really only good day of the trip. <laughs> oh no, I, I was joking. I was, I didn't no, we totally that. peaked. You were right. We totally <laughs> peaked. Everything was like downhill from there. And by downhill, I mean, it went terrible. Um, oh, no. Yeah, dude. So there's, there's a bunch of stories I could tell from here. Um, but that truly was like the peak of the trip. Both those bulls we killed that day ended up being the best bulls of the trip. Um, the easiest bulls that were killed. Those the were the easiest. Trip. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't sound all that easy. So those far. were the easiest by far. The best weather, like it was the day one was the peak, and then stuff just got real. Um, so we broke up into separate groups from there and hunted in separate groups each day. Um, you know, I won't go day by day, but we got a couple days of hunting in, and then we had a day where a weather system moved in and the winds were just unbelievable. Uh, we spent 30, I think it was 38 hours, 34 or 38 hours in the tent. Um, like solid, like if you weren't going to the bathroom you were in the tent for like that many hours it was were you were you in like bigger tents where you could sit or maybe stand or were are these like backpacking kind of tents yeah so we had both um okay so with the group we had one big tent it was like this giant dome and it was meant to be like this is where we can hang out this is where we can cook dry gear all that and thankfully we had that um, so as we spent 30 plus hours in the tent, we, we weren't sleeping. We were able to all sit there together. It was tight, but fit and, you know, play cards, tell stories, do whatever. Right. So that was a lifesaver. Yeah. And then outside of that, we had, uh, everything from like some seek outside TPs to l- literal one man backpacking tents. And so yeah. everybody kind of had their own little sleep strategy. Uh, and okay. then we had this one common tent, uh, that was for cooking, hanging out, thankfully passing the time. And then a couple guys were planning to sleep in that. Uh, thankfully, um, we had extra space in there because, uh, my buddy had brought a shelter that got destroyed by the wind. And so we ended up sleeping a few more guys, uh, in the big dome tent. So, um, wow. Yeah, definitely. Like you think of Alaska and it's like, you hear about how relentless and unforgiving it can be. Uh, and we definitely got a touch of that where it's like 
again, we're hundred plus miles away. No one's coming to help. No planes <laughs> yeah. can fly in this wind and you're legitimately in a position where your shelter can get destroyed. Um, and so, it, I mean, it truly is like next level when it talks about like having the right gear choices and all that stuff. Um, oh yeah. That. Like so. every, everything is not just it. The stakes are just so much higher for yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if you choose the wrong tent, it's not like, Oh, I might get some condensation or I won't sleep so well. It's right. like, Oh no, you're going to be stuck out in the weather and die. Yes. Yeah. So that was, that was crazy, man. Like a legit 34 or 38. Again, I don't remember exactly hours of you're either sleeping or you're in this tent with dudes or you're stepping outside for a few seconds to try and go to the bathroom. Uh, and in that cold and those winds going to the bathroom was not fun. <laughs> uh, there, again, keep in mind, there's like no trees. It's a flat area for camp. Like there's no break from the wind. So uh, anyway, we had a, we had a few couple, few good days of hunting before that. Uh, we had some more caribou in camp. Um, I think three or four total before that. Um, and then after that time of the storm, I think we had two, maybe three days left in the trip, uh, and still a couple, two or three tags to fill, including mine. Um, and long story short, I could again, talk all day about things I'm skipping over, but it came down to the last day of the hunt and okay. we were just not seeing caribou, caribou were not moving, um, you can see a long ways up there, but that doesn't mean you can reach something, you know? And so we were just like, I don't know what to do really. Right. Um, and so we decided to work up this river system towards the North slope. And it was just like, we're going to cover as much ground as we can cover and get into areas we haven't quite reached yet. Some guys the day before had kind of gone in that direction and, um, saw some caribou up there. Not many, uh, wasn't sure if they were quite reachable. They'd also seen some grizzly bears up there and wolves. I was like, well, there's oh, okay. a lot happening. We might as well go yeah. check it out. <laughs> um, so long story short, we got seven miles from camp, uh, up this oh. river system and spotted, a bull by himself and then another bull that I can't remember is with another couple bulls or cows. But anyway, there's just two little kind of separate pockets uh, of caribou. And um, I had a tag and a rifle and Lenny had a tag and he was sticking with his bow. And so uh, I just kind of told him like, Hey man, whatever one you want to go after, whatever you feel better about with your bow, like you take the pick. And, uh, he wanted to go after the little group, um, that had yes, more eyes, but also potentially more opportunity and was in a little bit better of a position where he thought may okay. work out better with his bow. And then, uh, Steve and I took off, um, to go chase this other bull that was by himself. A lot of the other guys at this point were so exhausted and had already <laughs> packed out care, but like we had, you know, again, I'm skipping over stuff of other pack outs and river crossings and stories. And at this point we had collectively packed out, I think five caribou. Oh uh, man. Yeah, you've got to be so, like, pretty thrashed at that we're point. Getting, we're getting somewhat beat. So some of the guys are like, yeah. oh, we'll stay here in glass. No problem. <laughs> we'll um, keep an eye on them for you. We'll keep an eye out. So, uh, yeah, long story short, Steve and I took off Lenny and I 
think Justin with the camera took off and then a few guys stayed back and uh, we had to make like kind of a, an approach and then circle around um, this kind of small peak and it worked out. I stalked within uh, 200 yards of a, a small caribou, a uh, small bull and had the moment of it's the last day. It's essentially this or nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'd really like some caribou meat. So here we go. <laughs> so, uh, ended up taking this small bowl on the very last day of the trip. Uh, unfortunately like seven and a half miles from camp and <laughs> upper river system. So it was great, man. I was like excited. It was a cool, it was like its own little pocket back where we were. So the country was a little bit different than what we had been through prior. Um, and it was, it was awesome, man. And then we strapped up for a long, long pack out and, uh, I was thankful, you know, it, it was the end of a long trip that started with the highest of highs and then went nothing like we expected from there. Didn't see the caribou numbers we wanted to see. Like when I talk about, we had filled four or five tags up into this point, we were essentially killing what we saw. Like we yeah, weren't just being picky. Was there. <laughs> it was like, you can go kill that caribou or you can, I don't know what, because we don't have any other caribou. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, like I said, those first two bowls, the first, the first day were the best by far. And from there it was like work and work and working hard for slim pickings. Um, but it was good, man. Like we, we did that. We did the crazy long pack out again, more river crossings, more tundra, more terrible, um, more hairy balls, more hairy balls for sure. Um, and I had honestly like that morning starting the last day, um, we weren't seeing anything. And I had just, I had come to peace with like, this was a cool experience. Like I'm coming home empty handed. Um, but there's so much to look at and be thankful for and grateful for and the experiences I've had and the time I've spent with these people. Um, you know, it was not, I wasn't mad. I wasn't, you know, bitter. I had come to peace with like ending this trip without getting to caribou and just being thankful for everything I did have. Right. Yeah. And so it really was, I had truly gotten to that point. So even though this was a, a small bowl and all that stuff. Like it was at that point, it was icing on the cake, man. Like <laughs> I wasn't bummed. Like I was super grateful to be like, I thought this was over. I thought I was going home empty handed and Hey, here's an opportunity to just still get a caribou and still take home some meat and to put a bonus on an experience that went nothing like I had hoped or planned, but that I still was so thankful for. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that this trip stands out for me. It's like, there was that one amazing day <laughs> and it was amazing, but there was yeah. so much about this trip that it wasn't what you hoped. It wasn't what you planned for. It wasn't what you dreamt of. Um, and so it's like you do at the end of the day, you have a choice. Like you can, and I'm not like, trying to oversimplify it, but there's a lot of truth to is the glass half empty or is it half full? Yeah. Um, and I just think so much in hunting and as hunters, 
that's on us. Like individually, we get to make the choice of, you can choose to get crabby about whatever didn't go right. Or you can choose to look at all of the things that maybe didn't go right, but that you still can be grateful for. Right. And at the end of the day, we are so fortunate to get out into amazing places, pursue amazing animals. Uh, hopefully at times do that with great people surrounding us. And, you know, it, this trip just really, really reinforced that for me of I could go, I'm, it was a waste of money and time and we didn't see any caribou and blah, 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 blah. Or I had another choice. Right. And so I think that's yeah. one of the reasons that this story and that trip really sticks with me because that choice always exists. And so every hunt from then on out and even outside of hunting, many aspects of life, I think back to those times and that choice and just have realized that life's just flat out better when you choose to be a bit grateful and don't <laughs> focus on the negative. Dude. That is, uh, that's you're, you're preaching now. That's, uh, that's some good stuff. <laughs> uh, that it, it's ironically enough. Like I am, I'm not a big new year's resolution guy. Like I feel like if there's something you want to change, like you could do that on March 2nd, like who cares? like make yeah. the change. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, there's always some kind of like introspection that usually happens around the turn of the year. Uh, and that's definitely been me. Like, uh, gratitude is my thing this year. Like I, just by default for whatever reason tend to be a glass half full kind of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm surrounded by so many reasons to be grateful. So I'm working on focusing on those, but like when it comes to a hunt, like you were just talking about those, it's the crappy stuff that makes it memorable that mm -hmm. you look back and you're like, like I still like unsuccessful hunts where you come home empty handed and like the weather turned and you freeze your butt off and like, I have a buddy who I drug into the backcountry to be my camera guy. Uh, and like all of that happened, terrible weather. It dipped low. We hadn't, we didn't have adequate sleep systems. So we were both freezing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we still like, that is what we still talk about. Like, man, remember those, those nights when it was freezing and we, we ducked out an afternoon early just so we could catch a hotel on the way home. Cause we couldn't do one more night in yeah. 30 degrees and subpar sleep gear. Yeah. Um, but like, that's, that's the, like, it sucks in the moment, but somehow it ends up being what you remember fondly. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know what that says about psychology, but it, it seems universal. Like your caribou as wasn't, you know, the bull you dreamt of and wasn't the way you thought it would happen. But I imagine like that is in such a more special animal because you spent 36 hours trapped in a big tent with these guys. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, you know, one of the podcasts we did was with uh, Michael um, Easter. He's an author and he wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis. I remember um, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, his whole book, and it takes place actually in the context of a caribou hunt, but um, it's not a quote unquote hunting book either. It's definitely much a, it's a mainstream uh, targeted book. Uh, but he, that's what he talks about is we have in our society, a crisis of comfort, meaning Th things are so comfortable that it's actually creating problems. And so comfort's not in and of itself a bad thing. And it's obviously something that we uh, 
very intentionally and evolutionarily like pursue. Um, but where we're at with our modern life is things are, we have the opportunity to almost constantly be comfortable and yeah. he explores the downsides and the dangers to that. And then for himself in the context of this book and not having a history of hunting really himself personally, uh, had an opportunity to go on a hunt and realized how much hunting, I don't say solved the problem, but gave him, uh, exposure to a different type of life than the modern comfortable life. And so in the book, he pulls out a bunch of like lessons and things like that of like how hunting contrasts with our daily comfortable lives. And anyway, it's fascinating, but, um, yeah, dude, the, the things that we get to experience as hunters that don't go right. And that are difficult, uh, are often the valuable things. Yeah. And they, they just make you a stronger, better person all around. Like your, yeah. your Starbucks drink is wrong is not as big a deal <laughs> when, when you've struggled to find a way to pee in the middle of an Alaskan windstorm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, dude, that's such a, such a killer story. Now I have Alaska on my brain. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, sorry. I've been back, uh, not to the Brooks range, but, uh, to Kodiak twice since that trip. And then I'm going back, uh, to Alaska again this fall. So I definitely am like, if it's a once in a lifetime, like truly you got to scrimp and save and plan for years to do it, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, all right, how do I try and make this happen again? You know, and how do I give <laughs> yeah. up in other things to try and get back to Alaska? Like it definitely is uh it took a piece of my soul. Oh man. That is a, I've, I've got a, a loose agreement with uh, our, our mutual friend, Josh Kirchner that uh, I'm, I'm 37 uh, he's, I think a year or two younger, but we have this, Hey, if somehow we haven't been to Alaska by 40, like yeah. we've got to get up there, like just yep. make it happen. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be crazy expensive. Like if guys are hearing this and, you know, thinking you have to have like tens of thousands of dollars or $10,000, um, for certain species, obviously, like I'm not sheep rich, um, or even like, <laughs> you know, $12,000 moose hunt or whatever, like that's not happening, but uh, caribou can be done much more reasonably. You could do blacktail much more reasonably. Uh, there's a black bear hunting opportunities that you can do very reasonable. Um, so there's opportunities out there that, you know, don't take tens of thousands of dollars. Oh man. That's so, uh, that, that's good. To, it's good to know personally. And I think good to share because it just, it seems like such an out of reach thing for your average guy who has, you know, a family and a mortgage and other things. He can't just yeah. only go hunting. Um, yeah. yeah. I think most guys, if they set that goal of like, you know, similar to where you're at, like, Hey, in three, three to five years, which is a long time, but you know, life moves fast. But if you get intentional, um, for a handful of years, I think you can scrape that together and, and make it happen. Um, pretty much everybody yeah. probably could. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, it's the advanced planning and the little, okay, if I cut this thing out yeah. and put that money away for a couple of years, before you know it, you've got your Alaskan hunt right there. Yeah. Um, all right, dude, well, uh, shifting real quick to, uh, to, to packs, to backpack hunting, to that whole thing. Uh, I mean, you, you told a little bit at the beginning of just kind of how it came about for you, like kind of combining that you like backpacking, you like hunting, man, is there a way to blend these two? What do you, I'll just ask you philosophically, uh, 
What do you think is, is maybe the, or one of the biggest appeals of that style? Cause it seems like it, I don't know if I've just become more aware, but my, my feeling is that it has become much more popular and, you know, the back country is much more crowded than it used to be during hunting season. So what, what do you think is driving that in people? Yeah, I think, uh, Mm, that's a loaded question. <laughs> so I, I think there's a difference between like, what's the appeal? Why are more people doing it? And then there's also like a slant to that answer of like, why is the backcountry more crowded? And it's not because the appeal uh, or the desire that's a part of it, but it's obviously what we talked about earlier of the knowledge piece. So yes, before yeah. it was like massive for me uh, in Missouri to want to go on a hunt in Colorado at that point my, was my first hunt. And again, I didn't have on X maps. I didn't have a go hunt. I didn't have all these things where I was like going into the quote unquote unknown, but with a lot of known information, meaning like I've looked at this place on satellite images and I know that there's a trail here and I've researched this and I've seen that, like I had printed topo maps right yeah um, and like a gps that had like these crappy little black dots and no satellite imagery and no topo lines and no nothing right yeah um and quite literally when i went on that first hunt i thought i was brilliant because i thought i found this trail that was going to be like super secret um because it would only i found this trail that only existed on this one version of this map from like the 70s and okay. didn't exist on these other maps that were more updated. And in my ignorance, I thought, well, that's a great thing, right? Like people now don't know about this trail that was there in the seventies. No, I soon figured out, well, that trail doesn't actually exist anymore. That became <laughs> a problem. Taking it back. That became a problem within the first half hour of my hunt, but it's <laughs> a different story. Um, so anyway, I think there's a, there's a desire and, that desire has been um, informed and enabled by the knowledge piece that we all have access to now, right? So yeah. um, while other guys may have sat back and had the desire 10 or 15 years ago, the barrier to entry was so high that it kept people from actually pursuing it. And now you have the desire, yes, but also a lowered barrier of entry and also more uh, exposure with things like, you know, people on YouTube doing it. And so it's just, there's a whole bunch of factors of yes. Like there's more guys doing it in an ex, uh, in one sense. Um, there's more information about it. It's the barrier to entry is lower, in fact, gone. Um, and so it's enabled it for sure. Um, so yeah, there's, there's been yeah. growth for sure in the backcountry yeah. and, and more people and states are adapting to that in different ways. And I, you know, it really does depend who you talk to as well. Like there's, uh, people who, you know, maybe hunted a spot and that spot's gotten quote unquote blown up. Yeah. are going to have an experience that's different from someone else in a different area in a different context. Right. And so, um, yeah, there's both good and bad about that. Like it's a very uh, nuanced and long and deep conversation for sure. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't complaining like, oh, the backcountry is more crowded. Like I'm, I'm excited to see more guys get into hunting in the backcountry. Uh, I'm more fascinated by that 
like I, I often think like I'm the weirdo. I mean, I know there's people like us who like to go suffer and live in the dirt and all that stuff, but you, you think of so many people would be like, well, why would you do that when you could have this like comfortable trailer truck camp and, you mm -hmm. know, just hike out for the day. And, and I get that. I do that some during the year, but like that, that weird inner drive, like, no, I want to go make this harder on myself. Like everything mm -hmm. about living in the back country is harder. And what is it that drives that in us? I don't yeah. know if anyone would ever actually know, like I, we know the benefits of it, but that initial, like, yeah, that horrible thing sounds fun. I want to go mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've thought a lot about for myself personally and explored, uh, practically like both in hunts and, uh, through XO, we do things called the death hikes. And it's like, yeah. why, why do we purposely try and design an experience that is going to suck? Right. Like the <laughs> yeah. whole point of our death hike, it's disappointing. Like when it's not really hard and terrible. And it's like, well, <laughs> it's weird. Right. So yeah. I definitely had those thoughts and like wrestled through that. And again, if we had another hour, I could explore that, but <laughs> dude, I would just say it's real, like, and it's there. And I think part of it is, um, unique to our modern times. Um, it's a luxury that we live in a time and place where we have to intentionally choose to suffer a little yeah. bit, right? Like it would, you know, you go back a hundred years and you talk to people and they're like, wait a second, you paid money and took time off work to go do this thing called a Spartan race where you <laughs> have to do something physical and difficult in difficult conditions. And you paid to do that. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's like one example of like, we just, uh, again, take hunting out of it. Like we live in such a time and place where whether it's hunting or a Spartan race or whatever, like a go rock, I've done all the above, like, but people are in intentionally almost have to choose to go do something physically difficult, mentally difficult and uncomfortable. And that's yeah, the recent phenomenon for sure. Yeah. But there's something in us from, from our like primal DNA that, that yeah. want, misses that in a way yeah. and wants to recreate that somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you don't feel alive without that. You don't feel, um, I think there's something and particularly for men and I'm not excluding women by any means, but I think men, um, have something in them in particular, uh, where they want to be tested right and yeah. they want to step up to like a challenge um you can see that play out in a bunch of ways like in culture and society but like men if they're not challenged or tested and haven't proven themselves uh whether they vocalize that or not they don't feel validated as much right yeah um uh -huh. and you know again like women do amazing things. I'm not discounting that, but I know from personal experience that, I mean, even my wife, like still to this day, she pretty much doesn't ask questions about stuff I do, but it's because she's given up on trying to understand it. Right. Like <laughs> I literally just got in recovering from COVID. Uh, and I went out, uh, I think it was yesterday actually 
at 4.30 in the morning to meet up with some guys and do a workout. And it was five degrees. And I came home and she was literally like, I don't get it. Like, number one, why did you do it? But why did you do it now? And you're, you know, she's like, you're kind of getting pneumonia. But like, she stops trying to both understand it. It is also like, stop trying to prevent it. She's it's like, whatever, he's going to do it, you know? Uh, but, so Yeah, no, that's uh that, that's that's a good wife sounds a lot like my wife who's just like okay you know you yeah. you you stay safe and you, you know i have an in reach and like i'm not gonna die out there uh yeah. she doesn't get it but she knows that like i come back a better man when i've had a few days of testing myself in the back country yeah, um exactly. and she's all about that yeah. um all right man sorry that was uh, i could go down that rabbit hole for a while um what, uh, and I, I won't make you insist you name names because you probably have to tread delicately here, but speaking of packs specifically, you are a pack company. Uh, mm -hmm. what is wrong with most packs or like what, what are some of the problems EXO set out to solve? Um, yeah, I'll answer that second question piece first, which will probably help <laughs> answer the first, but again, yeah. I have different thoughts on the first one. Um, so what's it exosolf? Uh, again, we've talked about a little bit about timeline and how the hunting world is a bit different if we go back even 10 years ago. Um, and if you go back 10 years ago in the pack world, you had uh, pack frames, which were kind of like external load hauling frames. Yeah. Pretty good for carrying heavy weight very terrible to hunt in because they were, <laughs> they were heavy. They were stiff. Uh, a lot of times they're very noisy. You know, it's this external metal frame, um, just bulky. You couldn't move in them. Well, they were fine when you killed something and needed to haul some meat. But up until that point, it's like, you definitely don't want one on your back. <laughs> um, and so you ended up hunting with either, what equates to like a kid's school backpack that someone put out <laughs> real tree and now it's a quote unquote hunting pack. Or if you were doing like some multi-day backpack style hunts at that point in time, general market backpacking packs, right? So like yeah. Kelty, Gregory, REI, whatever, they were great, you know, for the backpacking piece, right? So you had a good solution for backpacking and even taking that pack hunting up until the point you kill an animal. And then you had another solution that was good. Once you killed an animal, you need to pack it out, but was terrible before then. So figuring out a pack system that covered both of those bases well. So you could set out from your truck with five days worth of gear on you and go quote unquote backpacking and you're hunting. Um, and then at the same time, when you did kill something, whether that's on day one or day five, you didn't have to take that pack and then go back to your truck to get your frame hauler to then come <laughs> back in and then start hauling meat. Right. So it was trying to yeah. come up with a pack system that could carry heavy loads extremely well with good durability and good comfort and everything else. At the same time, it wasn't too heavy. It wasn't too bulky. It wasn't too noisy. And you could actually backpack with it and hunt with it very effectively. Um, so that's like the big picture of what XO is, you know, trying to solve. Um, right. you know, there's other nuances to that of like, well, those backpacking packs, you know, not only could they 
they weren't meant to carry weight. Meaning like if you go to an REI and you're like, I need to pack for heavy loads. When they hear heavy loads, they think you're talking about like 40 pounds, <laughs> not, yeah. you know, 60, 80, hundred plus. Right. So they weren't, yeah. those backpacking packs weren't built to really carry loads, but then even things like, if you think about a backpacker and what they're doing, they're never getting off trail really. Like they're always on trail. And so yeah. things like the durability, they're not really meant to go up, up against brush or be crawling under deadfall or, you know, from a durability perspective, from a noise perspective, from a visual perspective, right? Like there's all these things that could be improved if we had a pack that was more purpose built towards hunting. And yes, it was light and, kept your freedom of movement and everything else, but also had a built-in load shelf to carry meat and a strong enough frame to do that. And so, uh, again, we could get super deep into that, but that's the big picture. Oh man. Yeah. That's a, I, I started out with just a, it was a bright yellow Kelty internal frame pack I had that I didn't buy with hunting in mind at all. It was just yeah. my backpacking pack. Uh, and that, that was my plan. Well, if I can shoot something down here, I'll haul camp back to the truck and dump it all. And then I'll come back in with an empty pack and just, I mm -hmm. guess, load this deer into it. Um, fortunately I was a, an even worse hunter back then and never had to do that, but that was my plan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or you would get like, it was so common back then of guys who they've done that, meaning they're like, Oh, I killed a deer, but now I have to hike four miles to my truck and then four miles back to the deer. And now I've hiked eight miles before I started hauling any meat. That was stupid. So now <laughs> instead of doing that, let me wear my pack frame in, but strap my hunting pack to it. Oh yeah. Right? And so now uh -huh. you have like your pack frame plus another pack strapped to that. So that when you, you know, drop camp, you now have this lighter pack to hunt in, but your pack frame still in the back country with you. And then, you know, that's obviously a whole different mess. And so, yeah, we, yeah. we tried, you know, and obviously we're not the only one, but we, um, we're one of the ones trying to solve that problem for like this style of hunting clearly has demands that are unique. And how can we build a very purposeful pack system for those unique demands and solve that problem? Um, and that's still what we're focused on, meaning like we're not trying to through EXO build anything and everything. And people ask us all the time, like you guys should make a a travel pack or a duffel bag or clothing or a bino harness or like, and that's, that's all good. We, we love that people want us to do more and would love to buy more stuff from us. That's a great problem to have, but yeah. we're very focused on this is who we are. This is what we want to focus on. This is a problem we're trying to solve what we want to build. And we still feel like there's room for improvement um, for us to do better and better and better at that. And so we're, that's like, what we're getting after. Um, and everything else really for us would, would be a distraction from a core of who we are and, and core of honestly, how we want to operate as a company, because we want to purposely like stay small, stay nimble, stay very personal, uh, in terms of the experience that customers have with us and, you know, not chase growth at the expense of losing what we love. Right. Yeah. Well, and you guys, uh, from my personal, uh, experience, you do a great job of, I mean, not only the packs are great, but the, you, you mentioned kind of like keep improving, keep fine tuning. Like I first, my first EXO was a K2 and I thought this I'm done. This is the best pack I've ever carried. This will be amazing. 
and then had an opportunity to get to into a K3 at like, I was probably two or three hunts into it before I feel like I finally discovered all the little improvements and things that made it better. Um, but even just like the, the difference of like this K2, this is super comfortable and then throw the K3 on. And then I like this past season, I lent my K3 to, to somebody and then I had to go in and haul a tree stand out of the woods for my father-in-law. So I just grabbed the K2 out of the, the cabinet and like hauling weight on that. I was like, Oh no, the K3 really is more comfortable. Like ho- how'd they do that? <laughs> this is, uh, it's just, it, it's crazy. Um, but, uh, I guess along those lines and kind of the, the, the improvement or the always fine tuning, you, you kind of said like you guys were on the front wave of, Hey, how do we build this purpose-built pack? There's obviously, you know, a few more players in that game right now. Is there, are there things or are there ways that you can tactfully say without, you know, throwing another company under the bus, what are some of the things you think sets EXO in particular apart or kind of improvements that you think, you know, all opinions are biased, but you know, you're like, at the end of the day, I think ours is the best because X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I always like having this conversation if I know, uh, what someone's looking for and then also potentially who they're comparing us to. Right. And the reason being is like, it's a difficult thing to say us versus the world. Right. But if you, if you call us and you're like, Hey, I'm considering you guys or a Kafaru or you guys or a stone glacier or you guys or a Kuyu pack or whatever, like how I answer the question of us versus Kafaru is going to be different than how I answer the question of us versus Kuyu. Um, just because there's, there's differences in our product and in Kuyu's product and in Kafaru's product, right? So it's like, okay, which one are we talking about here, right? Um, <laughs> so I won't dodge the question. I would just say, like, we're happy to have that conversation um, directly and hopefully with some specificity because there's times where I'll just flat out tell somebody, like, here's maybe not what someone else does, quote unquote, better, but based on what you're telling me, here's why you might like something about someone else more than you might like what we're doing. Right. And so, yeah, uh, just an example of that is, um, I could pick anyone like Kafaru, right? Like if, if you actually look at the packs, there's a lot of differences, like a heck of a lot of differences. And some of those differences are functional, meaning how things are designed and how they would work and how they're constructed and how they're meant to be designed. And, again, both us and Kafaru have reasons for what we're doing. And again, that's a conversation we could have. And some of it's going to be preference. And so like you take a Kafaru system and it's going to be a lot more going on. There's a lot more webbing and buckles and attachments and options and modularity. And you can connect this to that and do this and build this, you know, kind of like Frankenstein system because they have a lot of different options. Our stuff's going to be much more simple and streamlined. So there's a lot less options, um, in terms of things and a lot less webbing and buckles and attachments and whatever. So like, here's what we do. Here's our system. Here's why it's designed the way it is. It's perfect. It's purposely simple yet versatile. But if you're the guy who wants like a ton of configuration, modularity, rebuilding this for that, like maybe you like a Kafaru better because you can add this pouch and pocket and do this thing and that thing and the other thing. Right. 
Yeah. Um, which isn't to say that we don't have any modularity. Like our, we have a frame system, bags are interchangeable. You can add different accessories, et cetera. But at the end of the day, like just take out personal opinion and preference. Like if you just step back objectively, here's like some very different things about these pack systems, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I love that approach uh, and appreciate the, uh, you guys, I don't know if your specific job is customer service or if there's other people that do that, but, uh, but I know like you, you guys are great when people reach out or have questions. I think my wife got in touch with you because she was trying to surprise me with a pack uh, and you guys like, answered her questions right away. And we're, we're very like kind and gracious to her. And like, uh, so yes, people, people listening, if you're on the fence about whatever, you know, you have 17 tabs on your internet browser with all the packs you're considering, uh, EXO will happily talk you through that. Um, last question. I know I've taken up a whole bunch of your time. I'm sorry. Are you even allowed to, uh, give any hints or teasers to what you guys have in the works right now? uh, as you continue to kind of innovate and improve and, you know, whatever the next generation of EXO is. Yeah. Um, the answer is we're always working on stuff and, uh, it takes a lot of time. (laughs) And part of that is like, again, going back to, we don't feel like we've solved every problem or we don't feel like we have achieved perfection. Right. And I hope we don't, ever honestly get there but at the same time like we were really super stinking happy with the k3 packs in so many dang ways and so it's like we're not the company who's going to come out with something new every year just so we have something quote-unquote new to then market and like generate like oh here's here's some buzz and sales and they have new product and they said it's 12 percent better or whatever they just made that up (laughs) um and so we are pretty we're on a pretty long cycle of like it takes us three to four years of testing ideas and testing our assumptions and playing with different designs. And like, it's a process to come out for us with new product. Um, cause a lot goes into that. I mean, we don't, you know, you'd be surprised at how many companies have, uh, designers, product designers that aren't users, if that makes sense. Meaning like, oh, yeah, you take a bigger company, Um, and I'm not necessarily even talking about like, um, like hunting companies at this point, though, some do operate this way, but like you go into REI, let's pick on Osprey because I don't care. (laughs) There's, there's money and executives behind Osprey going, where's the market going? What do people want and what type of product should we make to meet market demand? Okay. Here's an idea. Now let's take this idea and let's go to some quote unquote product designers and have them like come up with this design and it has to look great on the shelf because it's an REI and it has to have these marketing features we can talk about and it should do these things. And so they design it in this vacuum of like, here's this idea that we think would do really well in the market. And then here's this, these things that we think we could market and be really catchy with well. Right. And then at some point we're going to come up with a product based on those market demands and designs and whatever. And maybe Osprey doesn't do that, but that's how a lot of companies work. We're the exact opposite of that. We're super small. We don't have executives or anything. We're just hunters going like, we really love this pursuit of backcountry hunting. Uh, what problems can we solve? And here's a pack that we really, really love, but how can we make it better? And so we end up spending a ton of time in the field 
And sometimes we do have great ideas, whether they're our own or even from customers and like, oh yeah, that's, that's a great idea. We should do that. But then we go on a hunt and we're like, after six days of dealing with that, here's like these four downsides that we found that either makes this idea not worth implementing or makes us go back to the drawing board. And like, we do want to solve that problem, but we need to do it a totally different way from a design and use perspective. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, it takes a long freaking time. All that said to say, we don't have any plans to release anything new in 2022. We are hoping that the stuff we've been working on and testing and testing with other folks is going to be at the place where we can have updates in 2023. Um, but again, we still have work to do there. We, you know, every hunt I've been on this fall has been with literally like I went on a elk hunt in September and then used a different pack slash prototype two weeks later in Idaho and then a different one three weeks later in Alaska. Like it's an evolution. <laughs> it's constantly evolving. So um, we're always working on stuff. Nothing new in 2022. Hopefully cross your fingers. We're going to have some awesome stuff in 2023. Oh man. Well, it, uh, I'm, I'm convinced it will be uh, just because every, every, every so far, and I know it's been two packs, but like, I think, oh, this is perfect. They can't get any better. And then somehow it does. So I don't even know what uh, you geniuses will come up with uh, for the next thing. But uh, but I know you and Steve and who knows who else has been just, like you said, carrying different prototypes forever. So like the, I love that it's not what you described. Like, oh, this looks cool. And this will new for 2022 is this thing. But like, hey, by the time something hits the market from EXO, Hey, this has been on a lot of people's backs in the back country. Like they've dealt with it for six days in a row uh, to confirm that yes, it works. Yes. It solves the problem. No, it doesn't get in the way or make things more annoying somehow. Um, like I just, I love the, the R and D that you guys put into it. That is more than just, Hey, put this on and go run up that Hill and let me know how it feels. Like you actually mm -hmm. spend the time using it, which is killer. Um, what do you want to point people to? Where can they find you find EXO? Uh, it's, it's, it's your pitch time. Go for it. <laughs> pitch time. Go, um, <laughs> personally, very boring. Uh, don't do like much social media or anything. So I don't have anything for you. Uh, <laughs> our podcast, if people are podcast people is the hunt back country podcast, uh, should, wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to find our show. Um, and then obviously exomountaingear.com. It's E X O for EXO. Um, my email is just Mark at exomountaingear.com. So spam away. Um, or ask me real questions either way. Uh, but yeah, easy to find and get in touch with. I just don't like, don't, uh, do social or any of that stuff to point you to. Oh, I, I respect that. I really do. Uh, <laughs> I, I have conflicting feelings on social media, uh, which is why sometimes I'm silent there and sometimes I'm all over it. But, uh, dude, Mark, thank you. I took up way more of your time than I meant to, but, uh, but great story, great insights. Uh, you're just, you're a fun guy to talk to. So I, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, likewise, man. It was good. Thank you. Oh, no problem. I want to thank Mark one more time for giving up his time and, and jumping on the podcast with us. Uh, and like you said, the best way to get a hold of him or just kind of keep up with what's going on uh, is through Exo Mountain Gear. Uh, their website is terrific. They they have a, a newsletter and a blog that I'm I'm honored to contribute to from time to time. Um, and uh, on Instagram, they are Hunt Back Country. A lot of great content there. 
Uh, and more than that, they're just an incredible company. They, they produce a top-of-the-line, high-quality, American-made pack. Uh, I've had one on my back for three or four years now. Done some pretty grueling packouts with it, and the thing just keeps going, and uh, I, I can't speak highly enough about it if you happen to be in the market for a new pack. Either way, thanks again, Mark. I will now obsessively think about Alaska until I get the chance to go up there. And uh, until next time, we will see you guys later. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hunting Stories. And if you want to stay up on what we're doing with the podcast or anything else going on with Late to the Game, go ahead and check us out at latetothegameoutdoors.com or give us a follow on Instagram at latetothegameoutdoors. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.